Do you have questions about life and faith and God that remain unanswered? Do you feel like the Christian cliches are shallow and don't really get to the truth? Is this whole Christian thing rather uncertain for you? And, and does that uncertainty exclude you from true spirituality? My name is Skip Collins, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore concepts of life and faith and the Bible and Christianity. We'll challenge our traditional views and ideas, which at times will probably make us a little uncomfortable, but hopefully we'll come out on the other side more connected to our faith, to God, and to what we believe. So let's jump in to deeply spiritual, but rather uncertain. So here we are at episode number six. Welcome. We call this anger, vengeance, and wrath. Oh my. Probably about 15 years ago now, I started studying theology. I had never intended to study theology, although I did enjoy some Bible classes when I was doing my undergrad studies. I had studied music when I got out of high school. That was always my first love. Although I used the term studied very loosely, I was a really lousy college student, and if you happened to be there with me at the time, you know that is true. But when I was in my late 40s, I decided to study theology. The Baptist version of theology seemed a logical choice since I was the worship pastor in a Baptist church here in South Africa. So I signed up to do my studies through correspondence through the Baptist Theological Seminary in Johannesburg. Fortunately, I took this study much more seriously than I did my music studies when I was in my late teens. I had a class that I was required to take that required that I read the entire Bible through Genesis to Revelation, but it wasn't in a year. It wasn't in six months. It was actually over the course of two weeks. Okay, don't quote me on two weeks. It might have been three, but I'm pretty sure two is right. Um, but at this point, it's all still the same. I had to read eight hours a day for at least two weeks straight to get through it. I don't think I could even read Lord of the Rings for eight hours a day for two weeks, and that's my favorite book of all time. Anyway, I had to get the class done, so I took a couple of weeks of study leave, and I jumped in. I always knew there was a lot of violence in the Bible. But only when I read it for eight hours a day did I realize how much. By the time I got to the end of the Old Testament, I was having a true crisis of faith. It's just story after story of war and death and killing and all in the name of Yahweh. Could that be right? Is this the God that I serve, a God that wants to bless his chosen people with land, so he tells them, just go take it by force? Kill everybody and everything in the land, and I'll help you do it? Wow, that's harsh. It wasn't that I had never read this stuff before, but a straight week of it was just too much. It was kind of like binging on Games of Thrones for a week straight. Just too much. Then I got to the New Testament. Man, what a relief. It was like, is this the same book? Because Jesus of the New Testament looks very different to God in the Old Testament. 
Jesus said, love your enemies, not wipe your enemies off the face of the earth. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you, not punish those who persecute you. Jesus said, the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus spoke against power and against violence. So what do I do with this? How do I come to terms with this crisis of faith that I'm having? I didn't have a clue what to do, but it was really a problem for me. So I did the only thing that I knew how to do. I avoided the issue. See, the problem is when you're a pastor and a missionary and you have a crisis of faith, it's not only a faith crisis, it's a career crisis. And I think any pastor that's been through this kind of a crisis of faith knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's like if I go down the road, this crisis is taking me, I'll have a bigger crisis when I have to come and quit my job. I just wasn't that brave. So I just avoided the issue altogether. But slowly over time, I started to find people that were much smarter than I was, who were asking the same kinds of questions I was, and finding good, solid, theological answers. There were other ways of looking at this subject, and so rather than ignoring the issue, I was able to begin to step into the uncertainty and see something that I had never seen before. So let's talk about some of the violent images of God that we find in the Old Testament, and let's see where this discussion kind of takes us. But before I go there, I need to preface this with a couple of things. I see quite a number of posts on Facebook that trashes any theological view that is different from the traditional evangelical fundamentalist view. They tend to label it all as pop culture theology. I don't engage in those conversations, but I wish people would define what they're speaking about because much of the theology I've been reading expresses views that predate our modern views, views that go back to the third and the fourth century. Please don't dismiss theological views as liberal or heretical or pop culture just because they are different from yours. Secondly, if you don't have a problem with God commanding genocide or condoning slavery, then just don't listen to the rest of this podcast. It'll probably just freak you out, and it's not worth it. There are a lot of opinions out there concerning God's command for violence in the Old Testament. There are some, and they are many, that say the violent passages of the Old Testament are to be understood literally. No real interpretation needed. One famous TV preacher said it like this, quote, It's right for God to slaughter women and children anytime he pleases. God gives life, and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die, unquote. These people stand on the inerrancy of Scripture and on the unchanging character of God. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. The truth is, I admire these people's unwavering commitment, but I just can't agree with their stance. Now, just to be clear, the passages that I'm speaking about 
are not the passages that speak of God's discipline of those he loves. We certainly see many stories in the Old Testament. Over and over again, God gives direction to the Israelites, his chosen people, but they choose to ignore it. And when they do, there are consequences to their actions, and sometimes they're rather serious. Let's not worry about those passages at this point. I promise we'll come back to those later. But for now, they're not part of the discussion. Let's start by looking at the passages where God commands genocide. Wow, that's a strong word, really? Genocide? So I looked up the word. It says this, genocide is intentional action to destroy a people, usually defined as an ethnic, national, racial, or religious group, in whole or in part. So look at this verse in 1 Samuel 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That certainly fits our modern version of the word genocide. Or look at this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you read this in the NRSV, it's part of a section that's entitled The Rules of Warfare. In verse 16, it says this, But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Berezites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God commanded. Man, if you read earlier in this section, it says that for some of the towns, you can take the women as booty for your own enjoyment. Today, we call that sex trafficking. We could read on and on and on, but I think you get the point. But it begs the question, does God actually command this stuff? In my opinion, absolutely not. Remember in episode four, I spoke about the fact that all of my theology starts and ends with Jesus. If you haven't listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to do so. If you want to know about God's character, you start with Jesus. Not these passages in the Old Testament. Jesus reveals the true and the complete character of God. So when I start with Jesus, these pictures of God commanding that you kill the innocent children and you take the women of your conquest for your own pleasure is absolutely contrary to who we see in Jesus. I would suggest that the writers of these passages in the Old Testament saw everything through a filter of their own culture and their own understanding of God. It's something that we all do, by the way. They wrote of their own understanding of God. So where did that understanding come from? In the ancient Near East, there was an opinion about who God was that prevailed in all the cultures. God was a warrior, 
And when two countries went to war, it was one God that was pitted against another God. If you won the war, then all the credit went to your God. If you lost the war, then you must have done something wrong that caused God to be angry with you. It was a very tribal culture where conquest and domination was the rule of the day. I would suggest that much of what the writers credited to God was not God at all, but it was their understanding of God. It was totally authentic to their culture and to their time in history, but their understanding of the character of God was incomplete. So let's talk for a few minutes about the conquest of the Promised Land. So God sends Joshua and the people of Israel into the Promised Land. And many of the commands to kill and inflict genocide are found during that time and in those passages. But there are some really interesting archaeological studies around the conquest of the Promised Land that we read about in Joshua and beyond. And it's all documented. This can all be found online. But according to what they have found, there is very little evidence that the kind of conquest that is spoken about in the Old Testament ever actually happened. If these stories were historically accurate, one would expect the archaeological evidence to support the text, but it just doesn't. There's evidence of some warfare during that time, and there's evidence that the Israelites lived in the land, but archaeologists believed it was more of an assimilation rather than the kind of conquest that the Old Testament speaks about. Understand that the book of Joshua, where much of this conquest is recorded, was not written by Joshua. In fact, it wasn't even written by an eyewitness of the events. It was written probably 600 years after the events took place, and the truth is we don't actually even know who wrote it. These were stories that were told over and over for hundreds of years before they were actually written down. So there are plenty of theologians that believe that these stories were exaggerated over the years. The writers wanted to portray Yahweh as the most dominant, powerful force, so I guess they thought God needed a little bit of help. So they spoke of conquest and battles and warfare. In fact, there are stories of conquest in Joshua that in later books of Scripture are actually contradicted. So, for example, in Joshua, there's the story of the conquest of Hazor. After God gave them the battle, they killed the king of Hazor, and then it says this, And they put to the sword all who were in it, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. It was the complete destruction of the entire nation. According to Joshua, they wiped the nation off the face of the earth. But in Judges chapter 4, you read that the nation of Hazor is still controlled by the Canaanites, who were actually very powerful and are harassing the Israelites big time. Both of these stories can't actually be true. Many years later, Jesus comes along. And he speaks nothing of conquest and domination. 
In fact, he speaks love. He talks about praying for those who persecute you and loving your enemies. Jesus lays down his life for his enemies rather than eliminate them. Let's talk a little bit about the anger of God. But I want to define what I mean by anger. See, the problem is that in English we have one word for this whole range of anger. For example, there's an anger that I have against injustice that I see in the world. That anger drives me to action. My anger brings out something good and positive. But then there is this anger where I just react. And usually my reaction is over the top and not very just. When my kids were still young, there would be times I would get so angry, I would inflict some kind of unjust punishment on them. I would do something like ground them for a year. But later, when I cooled off and I wasn't so angry, I would come up with a punishment that was more reasonable. There were other times I would enact some kind of strong corporal punishment that I now deeply regret, by the way, but I couldn't take that back. Now, when I say God is not angry, I'm talking about that kind of anger, an anger that causes me to react in ways that are probably over the top. Over the years, when I've been counseling people as a pastor, I've heard over and over again people say that the problems they face are because God was angry with them. They say things like, I don't know what I did that God is so angry with me. In fact, I heard it as recently as two days ago. Let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. God does not inflict you with sickness or trouble or tragedy because he is angry with you. He does not inflict your children because you have sinned. He is not angry with you. He is not against you. Let me show you two stories that contrast this in terms of how the writers of the Old Testament speak of this compared to the character of God that we see in Jesus. There's a story that's told in both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And right off the bat, there's a discrepancy in these two stories. So the 2 Samuel passage starts like this. It's verse 24. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go count the people of Israel and Judah. And when David does, God gets so angry. But then when you read the same story in 1 Chronicles, which, by the way, was written a few hundred years later, the story begins like this. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. I would suggest that a few hundred years later, their understanding of God had progressed to the point that they realized that God would never be so angry with David that he would cause him to sin and then punish him for it. So then they blame it on Satan. So the story goes on. David takes the senses of the people, and for some reason, God is not happy, and he's really upset by all this. We don't know why. See, because at times God commands a census, but this time he's angry about it, and I... I don't know, but that seems a bit unfair to me. 
And so for whatever reason, he gives David three choices for punishment. He says you can have three years of famine, or you can have three months of being attacked by your enemies, or three days of plague in the land. Now, any way you look at it, many innocent people would be killed because of David's transgression. David chooses door number three. 70,000 innocent people die in three days. Wow, that is harsh. Now, let me put a positive spin on this story first. Because the truth is that when I sin, when I deliberately stray from what God has for me, or from what I know is right, there are consequences to my actions. Other people get hurt at times. It's out there. I can't take it back. And there are consequences, not just for me, but for people that are around me. I could share lots of stories of how I've done that. I've messed up and other people have gotten hurt. And so this story is fantastic at helping me see that there are consequences for my actions. But would God really do that? I mean, kill 70,000 people? I would suggest that when I've sinned and hurt people around me, it was the natural consequence of what I did that hurt people. It wasn't that God had punished me for my transgression. But put yourself in this story. You're living in the ancient Near East, and your view of God is that when bad things happen, God must be angry, and then there's this plague in the land where 70,000 people die, and so I look back and I say, we must have sinned for God to be so angry with us. And that is the story that the author understood and the story that the author told, I believe. Now, let me contrast this story with the story from Luke 15 that Jesus tells us. We call it the prodigal son. A man has two sons. The younger decides he doesn't want to wait for the father to die before he gets his inheritance. So he tells his father he wants his money now. This would have been seen as a massive offense. It's telling the father, I wish you were dead. It's being as disrespectful as you can possibly be. It is a transgression of note, much worse than taking a census, in my opinion. But you know the story. The father gives him the money, and the boy leaves, and over time blows it all. When he has finally hit rock bottom, he comes home, hoping for maybe a job as a servant. But the father welcomes him back arms wide open, and completely reinstates him as a son. The father doesn't wait for an apology. He doesn't demand that the boy prove himself first. He doesn't lecture the boy. He doesn't give him the choice between three awful punishments. He throws a party. If you want to know who God is, that is it. God is not an angry God who is waiting to punish you because you have messed up. God is not a God who commands or even condones genocide or violence or abuse against women. God is not a God who brings over-the-top punishment because he is angry with you. He is a God who grieves at our sin but who welcomes us back with open arms. 
And he even takes it a step further. He says, you have sinned against me, so I will die in your place. It is called grace. If we believe that Jesus is the full and complete character of God, then we have to be willing to deal with passages in which authors clearly contradict that, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So I hope all of that has messed with your head a little bit. Like I said in the beginning, and I'll probably say it again and again, my goal is not to get you to think like I think, but rather to get you to think. And if I've left you with a lot of questions, then I have done my job. But I just realized we haven't even touched on the subject of wrath yet, so we're going to have to get that in another podcast somewhere down the road. I promise we'll do that. But if you want to continue on this journey, then you can subscribe to the podcast. If you're enjoying these sessions, then then please rate us on iTunes. That really, really helps. And we're going to try to release at least two podcasts a month. But for a while, I'm trying to do every single week if I can pull it off. Um, Every Monday, we're going to be releasing. So keep an eye out. You can also check out my website at skipcollins.com if you want to know a little more about me. Next week, I'm going to be much less controversial and speak about glimpses of Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. Right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author speaks of the fact that at one time God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son. One version says we've had glimpses of God, but now we see completely through the son. So what are some of those glimpses that we see? Well, tune in next week, as they say, but for now, have a great week. Shalom. Shalom.